This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the importance of advocating for women's health with supplement company founder, Tanya Salaturo. We'll find out about expired mindsets with author, Dr. Sharice Johnson. We'll explore the difficulties of staying sober during the summer with addictions expert, John Hastings. And lastly, we'll learn about the health benefits of saffron with researcher, Ted Snyder. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. A study led by McMaster University and Hamilton Health Sciences researchers at the Population Research Health Institute has found that not eating enough of six key foods in combination is associated with a higher risk of cardiovascular disease in adults. Consuming fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, fish, and whole-fat dairy products is key to lowering the risks of CVD, including heart attacks and strokes. The study also found that a healthy diet can be achieved in various ways, such as including moderate amounts of whole grains or unprocessed meats. Cancer cells with extra chromosomes depend on those chromosomes for tumor growth, a new Yale study published on July 6th in the Journal of Science reveals and eliminating them prevents the cells from forming tumors. The findings suggest that selectively targeting extra chromosomes may offer a new route for treating cancer. Human cells typically have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Extra chromosomes are an anomaly known as aneuploidy. Nearly all cancers are aneuploid. In past, it was unclear what role extra chromosomes played in cancer. For instance, whether they cause cancer or are caused by it. Using the newly developed approach, the researchers targeted aneuploidy in melanoma, gastric cancer, and ovarian cell lines. Specifically, they removed an errant third copy of the long portion, known as the Q-arm, of chromosome 1, which is found in several types of cancer and is linked to disease progression and occurs early in cancer development. New research from the University of Montana and its partners suggests that artificial intelligence can match the top 1% of human thinkers on a standard test for creativity. This news is particularly depressing for me. I'll be joined by Tanya Salatero in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Real self-care means tuning in to what your body needs. If you're feeling overwhelmed, CanPrev Women is a good place to start. Whether you're looking to reduce stress or anxiety, improve sleep, balance hormones through peri and post-menopause, or just feel better daily, our comprehensive formulas are designed to support your individual health goals. Your body, your health. Visit canprevwomen.ca to learn more today. 
I first met Tanya Salatoro in November of 2020 when she appeared on episode 158 of the Tonic Talk Show. She's a cancer survivor and a busy mother of four who started CAMPREV over 20 years ago with the purpose of sharing the passion she had developed for natural health during her three separate journeys with breast cancer. For more information about Tanya and her amazing company, please visit canprev.ca. Welcome to the show. Let's start at the beginning of your health journey. You were diagnosed with breast cancer at the very young age of 21. That must have been very difficult. Yes, yes. The diagnosis at age 21 was shocking, to say the least. But I actually felt a hard pee under my breast when I was 19. And this little nodule was concerning. My mom said to me, go see a doctor. But I put it off, put it off, just like most of us do. Delay, delay. I was in university. I had exams and then I had more exams and projects. And so I put it off. But eventually I had what was a biopsy. I didn't know it was a biopsy. I thought it was just removing a lump. And when I went to get the news about, you know, getting the stitches out, oh, you know, the lumpectomy went well. I was told I had to have another surgery. They didn't get it all. And I actually physically went into shock. So yeah, it was difficult. Oh my goodness. So what treatment was recommended at the time and and, and what did you opt for? Okay. At the time, There weren't a lot of options. (laughs) You were basically forced into a cookie cutter. So you're going to have surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and drugs the rest of your life. But that's not what I opted for. So I did a lot of my own research, although don't tell anybody there was no internet at that time. I'm dating myself. (laughs) Yeah, you and me both. (laughs) (laughs) So I did a lot of research interviewing people through the Canadian Cancer Society, and I decided to go with radiation and surgery, no chemotherapy, no tamoxifen and all these drugs that were coming in the pipeline and to go for vitamins and minerals and herbs and try something alternative. Okay. So fast forward 11 years later, unfortunately you had more experience with cancer. Can you elaborate? Yeah. 11 years later, I was a stay-at-home mom. I was nursing my second child, homeschooling the first and I felt this really familiar twinge of pain in the exact same spot I had had breast cancer, you know, 11 years earlier. So I stopped in my tracks and I thought, I must be imagining this. Like, it it can't be. I just felt that same pain that came from cancer so many years ago. And indeed, when I pushed the doctors to really examine it and do some needle biopsies, indeed, it was cancer again. So at that point, you had to decide between another lumpectomy or a mastectomy. What did you decide to do? How did you move forward? Yeah, I was so young and and the cancer was considered very local. It was considered partially aggressive, but mostly non-aggressive. So I opted to have another lumpectomy. They said they would not radiate the same place twice. So that was out of the question. And I declined chemotherapy once again and kept on my route, my journey to find natural alternatives. What was driving your decision not to have chemotherapy? Was it the experience that you wanted to avoid or was it the point of not putting essentially the poisons into your system? Yeah, definitely a bit of both. (laughs) But on the positive side, I knew that there were really effective homeopathic remedies and other remedies and, and, you know, 
great ingredients out there that I just, I wasn't finding the right thing for me. I wasn't tapping into great products. I was spending a fortune on herbal medicines, but just not finding something safe and effective that I was believing in. Okay. So this is, I guess this is the start of your journey in, into natural health, right? So where did you mm-hmm. go from there? Is this when Canprev sort of was birthed or, or is that further down the line? Canprev? Our company was birthed a couple years later when I was actually having a mastectomy oh, when wow. my when my cancer came back a third time. So in the meantime, I sought out an iridologist. So that's a doctor who looks at your eyes and can tell sort of what's wrong with your body. And I sought out herbalists and naturopathic doctors. But what really was missing from the market was really good therapeutic natural products. That's what I was looking for. Okay. So I guess you could say you took matters into your own hands and created a company to fill that void, right? I mean, isn't that essentially what you did? Yes. Yes. Essentially, it's what I did together with my husband and a team around us and doctors. Uh, We are not formulators, you know, in our family, but I'm a believer. (laughs) So I had the heart and the doctors had the science and we put it together and it's just been a, a phenomenal success, our company. So people who listen to my show know that I am no shrinking violet, and I've actually had some health issues that I've been sort of navigating this past year. And what I've come to learn about our health system is that, you know, one of the most powerful tools that you have is actually self-advocacy. And I think you feel the same Mm. way, right? Yes. Actually, a motto from the very beginning of our company has been take ownership of your health. So that's around self-advocacy. You need to be your own ambassador. And sometimes you're actually too weak to be your own ambassador because you're in in a state of shock or depression. So this is where your your tribe is going to come around you and they're going to be advocates with you and for you. Why do you think self-advocacy is so important? Well, there are a lot of egos out there. Let's just put it that way. And so not everyone has the right answer for you. You need a unique answer for you. So you know in your heart and in your soul and in your body what you think is right. You do your research and then you need to go out there and fight for yourself. Be a fighter for yourself. You know, my recent experience, I, I had emergency surgery in February and then I was in the hospital for over two weeks which by modern standards is Mm. is quite a long time. And it was a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. And I guess the problem is, you know, I have a background in health and wellness and I'm a natural fighter, but also a professional one in the sense that I was a commercial litigator for 20 years before I did all this. But I found myself sort of like in a quicksand because obviously my issues were medically related. You know, Mm. you feel like a little bit sheepish, right? Because you're relying on experts, like doctors go to school for years and, you know, they provide their opinion And then you're kind of feeling, but, you know, common sense dictates a different answer than what you're giving me. Right. And and I felt, you know, for the first time in my life, I was almost second guessing myself. Do you ever come up against that or did you sort of have the strength of will to know all along that you were right and this was right for you? Well, because I was quite studious, a student at the time, I wanted to see what the research results were going to tell me. But deep inside, I knew what I, you know, I felt was going to be the right path for me. And, and it hasn't been an easy path. You know, I've had cancer three times. Would I change my decision? You know, would I go with drugs and things like that? No, because clearly I'm here today, (laughs) 18 years or more cancer free. So yeah, you have to believe in what your heart's saying and good for you. I, I hope you stood up for yourself, but you're here today, which is a good testimony to that. Yeah, so far, so good. I I still have a little bit ahead of me. So like, you know, as a professional advocate, I understand sort of effective advocacy. But as a self-advocate, 
The process is a little different. Like, what do you think the steps are for effective advocacy? I would say the starting point would be sort of education and at least understanding your real position in the world. Does that make sense to you or or would you start somewhere else? (laughs) Agreed. The only thing is that you have to be so careful and you and I have talked about this before, you know, about being overwhelmed by too much information and information that is not concrete. So I tend to fall back to studies. I like to research my ingredients or even, you know, if people are on medications, go to the studies what are the studies saying? You know, there are steps to advocacy. So in, in your experience, like what was the process of self-advocacy? What did it look like for you? So first is education mm-hmm. and, and then what? Like what other steps are there or were there for you? Okay. Then something so simple. Write down everything that you believe to be true and write down your questions and make sure you have someone in your corner who's going to be your advocate with you. Because when you go to your health expert, you might freeze up, you might cry, you might forget your path. And if you have everything written down, your thoughts, your heart, your wants, your desires, and you have someone there to even speak for you, that's part of advocacy, leaning on someone else, not just on your own self. And I think you've hinted at humility, like you have to humble yourself to know that you're not the expert. Nobody else is actually going to be perfect either. So you've got to bring all the information together and succinctly decide on what is going to be your unique path. You know, for me, you know, my experience, and they're vastly different than yours, obviously. Life-threatening, mm-hmm. but different, uh, more condensed. Mm. You know, I started questioning the, the process. Like, you know, w- hospitals are great for treatment, but they're not great for recovery. And, you know, I was doing everything they were telling me to do, and, and yet it seemed like I was stuck in quicksand and not moving forward. And I had this irrational fear that I was going to be in the hospital for months. And, I, mm. you know, I kind of lost it. And I said, hey, like, what's the game plan here? What's plan A and what's plan B? Because I don't see it. All I'm seeing is like you're throwing stuff against the wall. So we need a plan here because I'm not prepared to wait this out. I'm not a patient person. But, you know, mm. at, at the same time, it was kind of like you can't get upset because then people misinterpret the emotion for lack of rationality. And it may be that you're perfectly rational in your anger or you're upset, but people don't mm. respond to that. You kind of have to be even tempered and you, you kind of have to say, look, you know, for real, we need a plan. This is what we need to do. Here's what I need to hear from you. I need to understand X, Y, and Z. I know you've given me the top line explanation, but I'm one of these people that needs to understand everything. Can you give me more of the details? And that seemed to work for me. Mm. So what are the trusted sources of information for you now? You know, definitely knowing your health experts that are in and around you, Yeah. you know, know what their expertise is and know what their limits are. So for me, I have more than one naturopathic doctor that I go to and a holistic nutritionist. There are, you know, a variety of different therapists and doctors out there. So you have to find the ones that, you know, are, are going to give you the information that are in sync with your morals, your values, and your desires. You know, there's something called integrative medicine. Mm-hmm. And integrative medicine is where you are blending the common everyday Western medicine with other alternatives. So Eastern medicine um, would be Chinese medicine, uh, natural medicines, herbal medicines. And for me, I, I think that 
if you can look to integrative solutions, there's, for example, in Ottawa, there's something called the Ottawa Integrative Health Centre. This is a huge place that integrates all kinds of medicines. It does cost money, so you have to watch your budget. But even getting a little bit of advice from them or the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, I love going to them and, and picking their brains. So yeah, definitely look at a variety of sources of information and help. Okay, now let's focus specifically on women and women's health and dealing with cancer. What are your key takeaways for women based on your experience in dealing with the breast cancer as you did? Key takeaways, I guess it really kind of depends on your age for women. Like the first half of my life, say around the first 25 years, it was really about confidence building so that I could know what I wanted and and to be that advocate for myself. And ironically, in the second half of my life, say the next 25 years, it's been about recognizing my limitations and being more more humble and recognizing the need for others in my life, not just experts, but others who are going to fulfill me as a woman, you know, from a standpoint of community, from a standpoint of, of spirit, social belonging. These are key important things that I, I've really learned and, and I wish for every woman that she has a best friend, ideally more than one best friend could be family, could be, you know, a nurse that visits you if you're in the hospital, find a friend. And for me, I actually look for mentors. If you can find a mentor, someone you really look up to, and so that you can amalgamate all these sources of support for when when the tips are down. Okay, that sounds like good advice, not only specifically for, for cancer, but sort of women's health in general. I, th- I think that's very good advice. Time for one last question, and that is, what are your favorite yeah. go-to health and wellness ingredients or products right now? Okay, <laughs> I could talk forever on this, but I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, magnesium, magnesium, magnesium. Magnesium um, is very popular today, but it is responsible for over 800 reactions in the body and counting. So it's not only is it giving you a deeper sleep, um, it's helping you to relax because it relaxes your central nervous system and any kind of cramps and stiffness is really just beyond anything I can describe. Magnesium, magnesium, magnesium. Secondly, a lot of stress and anxiety these days. So B vitamins, Mm -hmm. love B vitamins. B vitamins actually help you to cope with stress. And the other thing they do is give you energy. So everybody seems to need a little extra dose of that. And lastly, is a very difficult to say herb called ashwagandha. Some of you have heard Mm -hmm. of it. It's from Asia. It's Ayurvedic. Basically, it adapts to the way your body needs it, especially around stress. So ashwagandha, like ashes, ashwagandha. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure, Jamie. And I wish you all the best on your health journey, too. Thanks so much. That was Tanya Salatoro. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss expired mindsets on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today. 
I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Therese Johnson is a veteran psychotherapist and mindfulness practitioner whose work focuses on the intersection of trauma, somatic integration, spirituality, and social justice. She's the founder of Jade Integrative Counseling and Wellness, an integrative therapy practice where personal values, the search for meaning, and the power of choice are the central focus. She holds a BA in Human Development and Family Studies, an MA in Professional Counseling, and a PhD in Counseling Psychology with a concentration in Crisis and Trauma. And for more information, you can always visit www.drcharise.com. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about expired mindsets, which I'm very intrigued about. I don't know what that means. Can you define that for me and perhaps give me an example for the listeners? So I'll give you a great example using myself. I was raised by a single parent. And as a result, when I went into the world of dating, my mindset was I don't really need anyone but myself. Long story short, I then met my now husband, but early on in those dating years and early marriage years, still believing that I only needed myself while trying to build a relationship with someone else creates a barrier. So the same mindset that kind of kept me protected due to various reasons had to expire and I had to kind of reframe it and shift to something new so that I could experience something that I genuinely desired which is connection. So that would be a really pointed example of an expired mindset. So how do we know if we have a mindset that doesn't work anymore? Is it that we, it keeps kind of playing out over and over again, then we keep failing in certain aspects of our life? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Part of it is you're going to know that it's redundant. It's something that you're constantly are saying to yourself, something you might believe about yourself or other people or how they view you. It's going to play out over and over. But the biggest way that we know it's expired is it typically comes with doubt, a lack of confidence, defeat. It holds you back versus propelling you forward. So then we know it's now kind of limiting where you could go in your potential. Okay. I tend to be very introspective. So I'm constantly Mm -hmm. analyzing my behavior and things that go right and things (laughs) that go wrong. But my experience is most people aren't necessarily terribly self-aware. What you're describing requires sort of a a sense of self-awareness before you can actually Mm -hmm. make the intellectual decision that, you know, the patterns that I have aren't working. Is, Is that your experience? Am I right about that? You definitely are right. A lot of people lack self-awareness, but even the people who do have self-awareness, it's one thing to be aware. It's another thing to say, but I'm willing to do something different. A lot of times people go, I know I do this to myself. I know that I self-sabotage. I know that I don't allow myself to fully connect in relationships, but then they kind of settle and go, this is just who I am or I've always been this way. So it's hard for people to believe that something different is possible. In my experience, you know, some people sort of stop at that step. In other words, they're self-aware enough to understand what their failings are or what needs work. 
but they almost weaponize that knowledge. In other words, what they say is, you know, I'm me, you know, I understand who I am, therefore that's enough somehow, and I'm not going to move forward, and you have to accept Mm -hmm. me for who I am. And to my mind, self-awareness isn't really much help if you're not going to act on it. Is that where you're coming from? Yes, I would completely agree. And when you are in that state of this is how I've always been, you're also not thinking about the cost to you. You're not thinking about the cost to the people around you. And usually that is honestly an excuse because a lot of people fear change or fear letting go of something that they've held on to all their life. So it's just easier to stay the same than it is to change, but does it make it better? Okay. Taking a step back, though, if somebody isn't terribly self-aware, is that actually a skill that we can improve upon, or is that just sort of their nature? It can be their nature, but it's also something that we can improve upon. It really is just a matter of, just like you spoke about earlier, being introspective and reflective, taking the time to look at things from multiple situations. So when something happens, there can be this part of us that feels like the victim and it's always everyone else's fault. But it's important for us to notice if we're constantly blaming other people and then stepping back and going, but what's my part in this situation? For example, if someone feels like they've had multiple dating relationships and they are all ending in a similar fashion or having similar struggles, yes, some of that might be the people that they're dating, but they also want to look at Am I looking for or attracted to similar qualities in people that doesn't end up being a good match long term? What's my part? And that is a skill. Yeah, I agree with that. So if we can improve upon our self-awareness, like what are next steps? So, So let's say we've identified a pattern that isn't working for us. I think a lot of people would be stuck at that point. What do you advocate for? Yeah, a lot of people would be stuck at that point. So the next point would be moving from awareness to action, thinking, what can I do? What is one thing that I can do differently? So there's actually a skill called opposite action, because when we're dealing with a very difficult mindset, like, I always fail, why try? So that mindset in itself is going to be paralyzing and make us not want to approach things with confidence. Opposite action means what's something completely opposite of what I would normally do. I would normally not try talk myself out of it because I'm afraid to fail, but opposite action might mean what if I consider the possibility that I'm not going to fail and just try and see what happens versus going in and believing it's going to be one way. So all you need is a little space in between the limitation and moving forward, but you have to move from thought to action. It's funny, while you were explaining that, I was reminded of my favorite episode of Seinfeld, where the character (laughs) George realizes that all his inclinations are wrong, so he starts behaving in an opposite manner, and he gets the job of his dreams and the girl of his dreams because he does exactly the opposite of what he's been programmed to do his entire life. So, yes. so there you go. And it's a famous episode. A lot, a lot of people like that particular episode. He, yeah. he, he gets a job with the New York Yankees. I'm aging myself here, but that's what happened. That's okay. I've actually seen that episode, so I'm also aging myself. But, you know, it's true because the thing about it is a lot of the mindsets that we have, once we take time to think about them, we'll realize some of them were passed on. They might be mindsets that our family members had, people that were around us said repeatedly, or if we don't know how to move through really difficult experiences, then we'll pick up some lack of confidence, low self-esteem, or fears 
that if we would just learn how to resolve and work through those instances, they wouldn't be there with us. But opposite action is a very simple way of going, can I allow for another possibility? Okay. How does your concept of expired mindsets differ from sort of the a concept of like mental or emotional baggage? Is that the same thing or, or is it a different thing? So it's a different thing in some ways. The goal of an expiring mindset is to also bring in that mindfulness aspect. So what I try to help people understand is sometimes people don't have awareness because they don't have the words for what they're experiencing. And I am a big proponent of also being very connected to what are you somatically feeling in your body? How are you navigating certain situations? What happens to you when you show up in a room that then impacts the way you behave and move forward? So my preference is it not to be seen as, oh, I have issues that I need to deal with, but really looking more at, am I walking through life and operating in a way that feels honest to me, that feels authentic to me? Do I give myself permission to completely be myself? And if not, what do I need to expire so that I have that experience? See, that seems antithetical, right? Because in some respects, you're saying, no, no, I'm, I'm being honest with you. Because, because, no, be, be, because in some ways, you know, you said you have an, an expired mindset, right? But that's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's to me, I think a lot of people might be confused by saying that and then and talking about an authentic self, right? Because mm-hmm. it's hard to dissect behaviors that aren't necessarily positive. And your essence, right? Which is, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. a person of essence. If you had met me 20 years ago, I'm essentially Mm -hmm. the same person, just in different circumstances. So I'm I'm wondering about that. That seems like a very difficult concept. Is it or am I just making it more difficult? No, it is layered. I wouldn't call it difficult. Use whatever words you want to. But I do think it's layered because it's way deeper than just reflection. Like this is deep introspection. Who am I? How am I showing up? Where am I showing up in spaces and I feel like myself? Where am I playing small? And it's all that intricate process because there are people who wake up at 40, 45, if not before, and go, I don't know that I really know who I am. I don't like my life, what I do, and the people around me because their life may have been built on thought. They thought this is what you're supposed to do, but it doesn't match who they really are. And now it's not as fulfilling. So it's layered, but not impossible, not difficult, but yes, complicated. I can tell you as somebody who made a life change at 38 from being a lawyer to doing what I do now, that I think there has to be like for me, there was a significant crisis before I was motivated Mm -hmm. to make to make that change. I mean, I I think I would have been great as a creative. I would have been much happier in my 20s and 30s if I had sort of followed through with my desire Mm -hmm. to be a creative as opposed to going into law. But I came from Mm -hmm. a family of lawyers, and and that's what I did. And it made me manifestly unhappy. And is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? Because that's a difficult change to do. It really is. That is exactly what I'm talking about. And it is difficult. It requires a ton of courage. It takes a lot of small steps, and I recognize that everyone doesn't have the even privilege and opportunity to make those shifts, but it's still an opportunity to go, if I can't make a shift in my entire life, where can I make one that's meaningful so that a person feels like, but this is a space that I'm choosing versus this is the narrative that was chosen for me. But much like you described, most people hit that point. You know, there's this concept around 
existential or life crisis and midlife crisis. And people kind of jokingly laugh about that. But that's a very real thing that often happens when we hit that point to go, I don't know that this is the life that I always want to live. So my desire is for people to know you always have choice and you can either sit and feel overwhelmed and stay in a life that you don't enjoy or you can lean in little by little to the degree that you can and start creating a life where you don't have to escape. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Therese Johnson. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss staying sober during the summer on The Tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Do you use vitamins, supplements, or other natural health products like natural toothpaste and deodorant as part of your daily health and wellness routine? If yes, what I'm about to tell you needs your immediate attention. Health Canada is proposing new regulations that will have a devastating impact on the natural health product industry. If the changes Health Canada is proposing goes through, many of the brands you use will see dramatic price increases or stop existing in Canada altogether. Stop Health Canada from taking away our natural health products and help to keep these products on shelves by writing a letter to your MP through saveoursupplements.ca. It takes less than a minute. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. John Hastings is the National Director of Alumni Relations and Development at EHN Canada. He's also alumni of EHN Canada's Alcohol Addiction Program. And for more information, you can visit ehncanada.com. Welcome to the show, John. How are you? I'm well today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So, you know, I'm not speaking from experience, but from what I've read, you know, it's always a challenge if you're trying to overcome alcohol addiction, but there are certain times of the year where I think it might be more difficult. And, you know, what sticks out in my mind, obviously, is the holidays when everybody's sort of getting together. But the other time is summer. So I thought it would be interesting to sort of discuss from your perspective what it's like to deal with these issues. And you can provide some insight to our listeners. What are some of the signs that you may have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol? So that's a really important topic and really the first question I think people should be asking themselves because, you know, summertime, wintertime, holidays, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or any day that ends in a Y, frankly, if someone has an unhealthy relationship with alcohol or alcoholism itself, the disease of alcoholism, the time of year and the time of day and the circumstances don't really matter. That disease isn't sort of picky. If then someone doesn't think that they're necessarily an an addict or an alcoholic, then yeah, there are, I think, times of the year where certain events geared towards uh, drinking and, and that sort of revolve around drinking are maybe a little bit more prevalent, like the holidays. And certainly the summer provides a lot of opportunity for socializing and, and getting outside, uh, patios and things like that. And so for someone who might be trying to taper back on the amount they drink can be difficult because there's just more, uh, there's more opportunity, especially socially, I think, in the, in the nicer months in, in Canada. So what are the signs 
that you yeah. might have a, a, an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. Sure. So to, to speak to that. So really, if for me and I speaking from my own experience, but um, also uh, EHN, we we um, deal with thousands of clients every year that come to us for substance use disorder. Essentially, if your relationship with alcohol is one where things like saying that you're not going to drink and then finding yourself drinking things like starting to have a strategy around drinking, so counting drinks. You know, people that don't have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol don't have to do those things, right? They say they're not going to drink, they, they just don't. You know, they say they're going to have one or two, they only have one or two. So if a person is sort of making these, these promises and then consistently breaking them, that's a pretty good sign that the relationship isn't healthy, frankly. And, you know, when, when that happens more and more consistently when when the boundaries we set for ourselves start to get pushed or broken repeatedly, this is a a good time for someone to maybe take some stock and and maybe ask for help. What's the difference between overdoing social drinking and and alcoholism? Is there a fine line or is it it clear? I think this is the age-old question. I, I think everybody who's struggled with addiction fancies themselves a social drinker for a lot longer than they actually are. I can say from personal experience, you know, I, I said that I drank a lot and I drank socially and told myself that that, that was okay, even though sort of deep down inside I knew that, that my alcohol intake was far beyond that and became actually less social and, and more antisocial as it got worse. The ability to stop without it being sort of difficult, I think, is what the difference is. Like, if someone says that they, you know, feel or feels that they have been overdoing it and then says, I'm going to do like the, you know, dry January type of activity or take 30 days off, if that's not a problem uh, and, and you can kind of easily turn off that activity, then maybe it's just heavy social drinking and, and some lifestyle changes, um, some small lifestyle changes would would help. But again, back to what I was saying, if there's sort of these boundaries, personal boundaries set uh, that can't be kept, that for a person with a healthy relationship with alcohol would be able to do that without spending an inordinate amount of time sort of stressing out about it. Uh, I think that that's kind of what the difference is. So you've been through treatment. What are some of the myths out there that you think are worth dispelling? Sure. So I think the first one is, the, the big one is that addiction treatment, and, and I'll speak to inpatient treatment or, or, you know, what we commonly refer to as rehab. There's a commonly held belief that when people go to a treatment center, that they're going to leave sort of cured of whatever they went in for. So that's not necessarily true. There are, we have lots of clients who come to us once, leave treatment and find a life in recovery and, and don't have to come back. We have a lot of people who come to us or other uh, other treatment centers and have, have gone multiple times because their journey look, just looks different. So the myth that treatment is uh, like a four-week or a seven-week treatment stay is some sort of cure-all is just not true. It's uh, Treatment is meant to sort of build a foundation and teach the tools of healthy living, uh, but it's incumbent upon the person who completes treatment to then engage in that in a lifestyle of healthy living and to continue to use the tools and skills that they learn in treatment. So we often get, you know, parents or spouses kind of sending somebody to us and, and saying, you know, that their, their expectation is that when they leave, they come out and they're sort of miraculously cured. And the reality is that addiction is a, is a disease that, that doesn't go away. It requires 
attention, and currently there's no cure for that. So like diabetes, right, is a good, ex- a good example. It's not just going to go away. It requires daily medication. And for addiction, that's more of a, a lifestyle and a combination of like therapy and attitude and, and action. Okay. So, you know, I, I think, you know, everybody's notion of sort of what it looks like to recover from alcoholism involves a, a 12-step recovery process, right? That, like you, you see it on television, you see it on movies. Right. What are some of the myths surrounding that process? Yeah. So 12-step recovery is the most widely recognized and widely successful long-term program of recovery. And when coupled with intensive treatment, like a stay at a treatment center, there's a famous Cochrane Review, which is a journal, uh, like a clinical medical journal um, that suggests that when people attend an intensive treatment program like a a rehab center and couple it with um, attendance, uh, lifelong attendance at uh, something like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, that that has the highest success rate or or chance of long-term abstinence and, and sobriety. One of the challenges, I think, for a lot of people in early recovery is that the 12-step program of recovery, uh, you know, was created and sort of was born in the 1930s. There's a lot of, you know, religious sort of connotation. The word God is used in, in a lot of the literature, despite the fact, and the, the myth, the spelling the myth here would be that Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, these 12-step programs are not have nothing to do with religion. They're just based in some, some pretty old uh, literature at this point that, that at the time, you know, referencing sort of a Christian God, you know, was what the founders of the program did. 12-step recovery is really just a spiritual, you know, guide to how to live life daily by, you know, addressing all of the things that, that we see, and it's sort of repackaged now in different ways, right? It's, we refer to it as things like mindfulness, right? The, the things that are taught in mindfulness courses or mindfulness apps are the same principles that are delivered in 12-step recovery communities. And I think the most important thing about 12-step communities is just that. It's a community of people. So when we find recovery, for a lot of people, addiction has driven them to isolation, and um, it's it's the reason why the going to the meetings and sort of creating a new a new social group for yourself is really important. And so uh, I understand that not everybody sort of buys into twelve step recovery, but both through personal experience and from what I know, sort of scientifically, it's proven to have sort of the best outcomes long term. Fantastic! Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jamie. That was uh, John Hastings. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the health benefits of saffron on the tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? 
Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Along with Linda Wolven, Ted Snyder is the author of the Natural Path newsletter and of several books on natural health. Linda and Ted have been writing The Natural Path for over 26 years. It's a leading source of easy-to-read, cutting-edge natural health information. Linda runs a virtual natural health clinic, and it's been a long time since you've been on the show, Ted. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, Jamie. How are you doing? Good. But you know, I know when you come on the show, you are absolutely stone cold for sure going to drop the latest research on whatever it is I'm asking about. I think the last time we were on, you were on, it was chocolate. Great. But today we're going to talk about saffron. You up yeah. for the task? I built you up now, so you can't let me down, right? I'll try. Okay. <laughs> so saffron, one of the most expensive substances on the earth, mm-hmm. great for paella and turning mm-hmm. things yellow, but it's got some health benefits, right? Yeah, it does. And you're right. It's been it's been most known as a as a sort of food spice for things like paella and for Persian cooking, but actually for thousands of years it's been a medicinal herb in India and Egypt and Greece and especially in Persia, but it's gone largely ignored by Western science until now. Um, in the last few years, there's been this explosion of research on saffron, and, and um, I think now it's one of the most exciting medicinal herbs out there. Okay, so you sent me a list of sort of the yeah. possible ailments that it can be used for. So, so I'll just kind of, I'll give them to you and you explain the, you know, the, the science behind it. So, yeah. so generally mental health issues are, are what saffron seems to be able to treat. Is that, is well, that right? So that's the cool thing, Jamie. It actually treats tons of things. It's, a, it's an incredibly versatile herb, but I wanted to focus on mental health because there's just been this burgeoning research on, on a bunch of mental health conditions. And if you look back in like ancient, ancient botanical texts, like I'm talking about, I think the first mention was in, was in an Assyrian herbal dictionary that, that goes back to like the 7th century BC. So we're talking 3,000 years ago. Wow. And one of the things it said is that saffron's used for what they call diseases of the brain. So as well as all of its other uses, it's been a mental health herb for 3,000 years. And what really excites me, Jamie, about saffron is that we're looking at a single herb that's incredibly safe, like way safer than drugs. And it's a single herb that has been shown to be as good or better than pharmaceutical drugs for depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's, ADHD, OCD. It's been shown to beat placebos for insomnia, for stress. It's like nature's answer to mental health in this single beautiful flower, which is, it's remarkable. Okay, so here's what I know. When I go to the store to buy my saffron, yeah. and it actually, it's incredibly expensive. Yeah. It, for medicinal purposes, how do people take it? And is it as expensive to use medicinally as it is to use culinarily? 
Yeah, so Jamie, first of all, saffron's expensive because the part that's mostly used is the stigma, the little filament that sticks out of the flower. It's right. like an orange, gold, red stigma. There's only three of them in each saffron flower. And so they have to go out and pick them in the field, like stigma by stigma. So it's labor-intensive. That's why it's expensive. It's not prohibitively expensive as a herb, though. You know, you buy it, it comes in bulk. And there's also some research beginning now that's starting to suggest that you can use the petal, the flower petal, that it may be just as good, um, and that would be a lot, lot cheaper. So the prices are much more reasonable as a medicinal herb than as a culinary herb. So it's accessible, it's affordable, it's safe, and it's effective. Okay, so what did this research tell us? So, so I think you said the Assyrians have been using it three centuries ago. So what is the current state of the research on saffron. What did they find out? Like, What's what's the data? The research is in all types of mental health conditions. I think maybe the the most research has been on depression, but the research on on Alzheimer's and um, on ADHD is phenomenal. You know, in ADHD, there's at least two published double-blind studies in the last couple of years that have compared saffron head-to-head with Ritalin, the most commonly used ADHD drug. Now, Ritalin works often, but it doesn't work in about a third of kids. And it has potentially serious side effects, including heart problems. So a natural alternative would be really huge. Both of these studies found that saffron worked at least as well as Ritalin. In one study, it worked slightly better, but it wasn't a significant difference. So it's only fair to say that it works as well as Ritalin, but it's safer. And it has an advantage over Ritalin because kids with ADHD also have sleep trouble. And because saffron's a great insomnia herb, also the studies found that it helps kids to fall asleep faster. So that's really exciting research that saffron is as good but safer than Ritalin with advantages. And then if you look at depression, I would say that saffron is, I would call it the most exciting new herb for depression out there. It's been shown in many studies to be as good as Prozac. At least five systematic reviews and meta-analyses now have shown that it's as good as Prozac and Amipramin, but that it's safer. For people who don't want to stop using their drugs, there's also research showing that adding saffron to antidepressant drugs makes them work better. And as a bonus, Jamie, a lot of antidepressant drugs cause sexual dysfunction in both men and women. And there's a significant body of research showing that adding saffron prevents the sexual dysfunction. So this is a herb that's as good as the best antidepressant drugs, but safer, and also gets rid of a lot of the side effects from those antidepressant drugs. So that's really impressive and important research. What is the active ingredient in the saffron that is doing all this work, like chemically? I don't know. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that. (laughs) Nobody knows for sure yet. Saffron's a very complicated herb. It has a lot of things in it. It has has several active ingredients. Most of them are actually types of carotenes, but there's a bunch of them. And a lot of the saffrons on the market are standardized for a couple of these different carotens like crocetin and, and saffronol and things like that. So it's probably working in lots of ways. Um, and as far as how it helps depression, we don't know. It seems to increase serotonin like drugs do, but it also seems to work in all kinds of other crazy ways. For example, um, it seems to work as an anti-inflammatory in the brain, and there's a lot of research now linking inflammation to depression. There was a study published 
actually just a couple of days ago, it was a, it was a study that actually combined saffron and chamomile as a tea. Sounds strange, but it's actually the third study to look at saffron and chamomile teas. And they also found that, that the saffron seemed to be improving cholesterol. And cholesterol is part of the fats that make up cell membranes that determine what can get into and out of the cells. And it looks like saffron might also be improving the cell membrane, so things like serotonin can pass more readily in. So it's probably working as a, as a sort of serotonin increaser, as an anti-inflammatory, as a cell membrane regulator. It seems to increase tryptophan. So we really don't know for sure exactly what's doing what. And the, the best answer right now might be that there's actually lots of ingredients in saffron that are doing lots of things. It may be helping depression in, in, in tons of different ways. So in terms of its use, let's just use depression as an example. Yeah. Are the people doing the research, are they recommending that this is for everybody? And my understanding is with, with a lot of natural products, it's almost like you take it almost as a preventative measure, or is it the type of thing that if you have depression, then maybe this would work for you and it's not necessarily for everybody? It's a great question. I think the simple answer is that it's for everyone. And let me tell you why I say that. The reason why I say it's for everyone is because in terms of depression, there's been research showing that it helps kids with depression. There's been research showing that it helps adults and elderly people with depression. But one or two really cool studies, Jamie, have also shown that people who are not clinically depressed but have sort of regular subclinical feelings of low mood or anxiety or stress. Yep. And like today that's everybody, right? Yeah. I was gonna I was gonna say my hand my hand yeah. is up I mean, right now, right? That's me, sure. Yeah. Yeah, you're not diagnosed depressed, but you feel stressed, anxious, low mood. Saffron helps significantly with that also. So this is a herb that helps everything from kids to elderly people who have depression and also just helps if you're just like kind of feeling down or stressed or anxious. So it's it's kind of for everyone. It does also help in, in certain particular subgroups, like there's research showing that it helps with menopausal and postpartum depression, and there's research, saffron's also a good diabetes herb, and there's, there's research showing that it helps depression and insomnia in diabetics, so there's growing research that it just seems to kind of help everybody with their mood. There's even just studies on saffron and happiness, that studies have shown that people who take saffron score better on happiness scores. So I think the quick, safe answer is it's good for depression for everyone. Okay. Time for one question, one yep. last question, and that is, are there any contraindications or is there anybody who shouldn't be taking saffron? So, I mean, that, that's a hard question because everybody's different, but the right. research has suggested that it's a remarkably safe. There's no, there's, it's, it tends to be as safe or safer, not just and drugs, but then placebos in the research. So it looks like a very, very safe herb. I'm not aware of people that would just say you can't have it. It's always different for different people. But one of the sort of standout points on the research on saffron has been its remarkable safety. I'm sure you would say, though, like before taking anything, even a natural health product, you should probably consult either with a naturopath or a doctor just to make sure that it is right for you, right? Yeah. I mean, it's always a good, it's always a good idea not to be your own practitioner anyway. And yeah, and I would say before before you, before you start anything, you should talk to a doctor or a herbalist or a naturopath or someone who's, who can you know, look at you and your symptoms and your condition and the other things that you're on and, and help you with a program. Having said that, like we said, it's incredibly, incredibly safe. But yeah, you should always consult with a, a qualified practitioner. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, James. Great talking to you again. 
Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Tanya Salatoro, Dr. Sharice Johnson, John Hastings, and Ted Snyder. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The July-August issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you are interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.